Hi there, and welcome to Future to Fight For. My name's Ed Miller. I'm a senior campaigner at GetUp, a movement of over 1 million Australians working towards a more fair, flourishing, and just society. Future to Fight For is a series of short conversations about the challenges of the world as it is, and the possibilities of the world as it could be. Each episode, we'll chat to a different guest about a different issue, focused on a vision for the long-term health of our society, rather than the next term of government. If you're enjoying yourself, please like, share, and subscribe this podcast so that we can stay in touch as new episodes get released. And of course, if you want to find out more, you can head to futuretofightfor.org.au. To kick off the first episode, we're chatting to Joseph Stiglitz from Columbia University. Professor Stiglitz is a former chief economist and vice president of the World Bank, and he was chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisers under Bill Clinton. He won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2001, and just last month, it was announced that he's this year's recipient of the Sydney Peace Prize. Professor Stiglitz will be in Australia in November this year, but we caught up over the phone last week to talk about inequality, excess corporate power, and some of the economic myths that hold us back from great economic policy. Professor Stiglitz, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Now, you grew up in a steel town in Indiana, and you would have seen the rise and fall of industry that took place after World War II. I'm wondering what that was like and how it influenced your understanding of economics and inequality. When I was growing up, it was, you might say, the golden age of capitalism, but I didn't feel it that way. Uh, I looked around and I saw enormous poverty, racial discrimination. I saw my classmates periodically not having any money, either because their parents were on strike uh, or because we were in another uh, economic downturn and the mills had let off people. So it was those concerns that actually motivated me to become an economist. I think that background's really interesting because I think that many people in politics and even academia shy away from discussing issues of redistribution. You know, there's a lot of talk about how we grow the pie, but people tend to worry that talking about splitting up the pie differently will be called a politics of envy or even class warfare. And you've never really been afraid to dive headfirst into that debate. Well, actually, I've taken quite the opposite view. Uh, in my book, The Price of Inequality, what I argued is that when you divide the pie more equally, you can actually get more prosperity. The economy can grow faster. And I'm pleased that since then, uh, this has become a mainstream view. IMF is not known to be a left-wing organization has been going around other countries how important it is to avoid the extremes of inequality because those extremes do undermine the potential for economic growth. In fact, we heard the head of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, say just the other day that a race to the bottom on corporate tax rates will leave us all at the bottom. I know that your country's just given away trillions of dollars in, in a huge corporate tax cut, and the government here in Australia is trying to push through a $65 billion tax cut as well. In your opinion, are, are tax cuts the right way of going about growing an economy? No, I think it's absolutely the wrong way. She's absolutely right. It's the race to the bottom. You know, what makes a difference for a successful economy, particularly in the 21st century, is investments in people and technology, uh, basic research on basis of which all our advances occur, uh, investments in uh, infrastructure, all these kinds of uh, public investments are at the core. And you have to have taxes to finance these. I know a lot of countries around the world that have very low taxes and miserable public infrastructure, and uh, they're not growing very well. And unfortunately, 
that's the direction in which the U.S. is headed. The president in his campaign said one of his highest priorities was rebuild America's infrastructure. Anybody that comes to the United States knows that in many ways like a third world infrastructure. And yet in January, uh, I was at a meeting with the Secretary of Transportation, and uh, she said, uh, well, we have just one problem, no money. <laughs> and of course, my response is, well, why didn't you think about that a month ago when you passed this corporate tax cut, tax cut for billionaires, creating a deficit of somewhere between one and two trillion dollars. So it's actually just the wrong way to get robust growth for the economy. And one of the other arguments you make in the price of inequality is that a lot of the world's more developed countries are running deficits at the moment, and that that's not necessarily the end of the world. Uh, Your argument is that it's the quality of the deficit that matters more than the quantity of the deficit, and that there's no point in racing back to a balanced budget at the expense of a healthy economy. Why is that, and, and what should governments be spending on? Yeah, there's a basic principle, which is called the balanced budget multiplier, which if the government uh, increases expending and increases taxes, even that will stimulate the economy. But if you do the other, if you cut back expenditure and you cut back taxes, it actually depresses the economy. If a country borrows money, but uses that money for high return investments and Research and technology and infrastructure and education are very high return investments, then the economy is wealthier. I mean, just think about it. If you can get on a return of 20, 30% and you can borrow at 2 or 3%, it's a good deal. Uh, any firm would do it. The government's in a good position because it can borrow at a low interest rate. And in many of our countries, and I know the United States is true, because we've underinvested in the public area for so long, returns are actually very, very high. You were one of the economists that predicted the global financial crisis, and you've been writing about some of the structural problems of trade and inequality for many years. One of the things that struck me when I went back and read some of your earlier work is that it must have been so frustrating for people to take so long to catch up to your way of thinking. What's that journey been like? (laughs) Uh, Yes, in some ways, obviously it's frustrating. You know, when you see things uh, seemingly so clearly and you work so hard to try to explain it simply, you know, you might say that my natural language is a, as, a, as an economist is mathematics, but if you're going to persuade people, you have to speak another language than mathematics. You have to speak in, in words. And, and converting it into words is not an easy task. So in that sense, it's been very frustrating. On the other hand, I am very pleased that at least this issue of inequality has finally reached the top of the agenda, partly because the level of inequality has reached uh, a level that was unimaginable 30 years ago, when I, 40 years ago, when I began my work. So at least finally, the issue of social justice and the issue of economic justice is, is really firmly on the agenda. And can you tell us just how bad is inequality at the moment? Well, there, there are many different ways of trying to capture the magnitude of the inequality. There are a couple of statistics on wealth in the United States that capture how bad things are. Eight Americans from two families who made one critical decision, which was to choose the right parents who were wealthy, inherited all their money. 
uh, have as much wealth as the bottom third of the country, you know, roughly 135 million. There are about 42 billionaires around the world who have as much wealth as the bottom 3.7, 3.8 billion people. It sort of gives you a a picture of how unequal uh, things are. In the United States, what has been devastating to me is that the inequality is now showing up not only in our politics, but in our health. Life expectancy is, is in decline. It's not because we don't have the resources. It's not because we don't know how to extend people's life. We've made enormous advances in uh, the ability to extend people's life. But our inequality has had such a devastating effect on our society that we are as rich as we are. Our life expectancy is declining. And there are many people who argue that that level of wealth at the top is is something that's that's deserved. It's the product of hard work and and people kind of acquiring it over a series of of good decisions over the course of their life. Uh, and that, in fact, having that that level of wealth held in the hands of a few is is good for the economy because it allows those people at the top to make the investments that then create jobs. What's wrong with that view? Well, that's why I pointed out that the only decision that those eight Americans from the Walton and the Koch families uh, made was to choose the right parents. That's not hard work. Uh, that's that, that's luck. So that's the case where you cannot defend that inequality on that argument. There are some people who have become wealthy as a result of hard work. But if you look at many of them, if not most of them, what you see is that at least a significant fraction of their wealth comes from things like market power, monopoly power, exploitation in one form or another. One of the wealthiest people is Bill Gates, uh, Microsoft. And while there is some controversy about the intellectual contribution of operating system, uh, there is no doubt that a lot of the profits that Microsoft gained were a result of their anti-competitive practices. Uh, and they were found to be engaged in anti-competitive practices in Europe, in America, and in Korea. You know, there's no doubt about that. And so that's an example where you take advantage of, of power to increase your wealth at the expense of the rest of society. One of the things that stands out to me when we're having these debates about whether what's good for business is good for society is that so often what's good for a particular business isn't even good for other businesses. Uh, You mentioned Microsoft's monopoly power, but we could look at Uber or Amazon or in Australia, we've got a huge supermarket duopoly that extracts a lot of rent from farmers and suppliers and truck drivers along the supply chain. Is this kind of market behavior something that we can expect to see more of? Yes, it's a real problem around the world. Uh, I've been engaged in a project here in the United States trying to assess uh, this, and and uh, the Council of Economic Advisors under uh, President Obama pointed out that in sector after sector, there's an increase in concentration, uh, increase in, in, in market power in, in a lot of key sectors. And uh, another study has corroborated uh, the markups, the ratio of price to cost has gone up. And all that means that what has been going on is 
that while the share of labor is going down, and even in a sense the share of capital is going down, the share of monopoly power of rents is going up. And a rent-based economy is not going to be a dynamic economy. Uh, it's not going to be uh, an economy where there's shared prosperity. It's just the opposite. And we, we both use the word rent in that question and answer there. Do you mind explaining what a rent is? Well, a rent is just something you get not from your effort. The origin of the term was uh, land rent. You own a piece of land and you get a rent. It's not that you did anything deserve that rent, but you owned an asset and it generates that rent. If you own a monopoly, you actually do something. You, know, you raise your prices and you exploit others. And we've actually, we call it a rent, but it's actually a rent that's much worse than a land rent because it actually is based on exploitation. Uh, we also use the term rent seeking to describe how firms try to get special privileges from government to enhance their profits at the expense of others. Our drug companies, for instance, are always trying to extend their life of their patents so they can charge very high prices, undermining access to medicine by ordinary individuals all over the world. In The Price of Inequality, there's a chapter about the way that current levels of inequality aren't actually inevitable and probably weren't unavoidable. That in some respects, they're as much the fault of backwards-looking policy settings as they are corporate power and, and the market itself. Is that correct? And if so, what can governments around the world do better moving forward? Well, there actually is a comprehensive policy framework that one needs to do to combat market power. You have to look at this from both the power of firms and the lack of power of workers and the lack of power of consumers. So, for instance, one of the problems in the United States and in Australia has been that the workers' bargaining power has been vastly undermined. The way we manage globalization, where we basically pitted unskilled American workers against unskilled workers from much more developing countries, undermined their bargaining power. So it's a combination of more market power for firms, less market power for workers, and then if you look inside the corporation, more power for the CEOs. Inside the boardroom, they're able to get for themselves uh, outsized compensation so that today in the United States, among the larger corporations, CEO pay is like 300 times that uh, of the average worker. And in some companies, it's well over a thousand. So one has to see this as a more comprehensive problem than just power in the product market. It's such a huge disparity in income. Where does it come from other than the product market, both looking at history and, and looking at today? Uh, some of this had to do a lot with tariffs. You protect your companies against competition from abroad. But today, in a lot of sectors of the economy, the lack of competition comes from how we regulate and how we manage sectors where there's probably going to be limited competition, but we could have a lot more competition than we do. So there are two or three telephone companies, two or three internet providers, a few major airlines, and 
And all of these are important areas for our economy, for individuals' well-being, where we've allowed market power to grow to a level which I think is unconscionable. And you mentioned in there that part of the problem over the last couple of decades has been international trade and the way that structures of international governance have been set up, something that you would understand very well, having been chief economist at the World Bank. I'm wondering what you think about the current debate that's playing out about trade agreements like the TPP. One of the arguments is that they actually disempower workers and national governments and and more power to corporations. How do you see trade policy playing out in the best possible way moving forward? Yes, well, the trade agreements that we made 20 years ago, like the WTO, did make a difference and they helped create an international rule of law, something that... Uh, now that Trump is president, we really come to appreciate because he's trying to destroy the rule of law. But the more recent agreements like TPP are really exercises in corporate power. Uh, When the U.S. government looked at the impact of TPP on U.S. economic growth, they estimated when it was fully implemented in, say, 15 years, the net effect on U.S. economic growth was 0.15 of 1%. In other words, essentially zero. And academics said they were vastly exaggerating. So the main part of this was not about trade. Well, if the trade agreement doesn't do anything about trade, what effect does it have? There are two other parts that are well, really the invidious parts of TPP. The first was intellectual property and particularly pharmaceuticals. It was designed to make access to generic medicines more difficult, hurting some of the poorest countries that don't have adequate health insurance systems, including the United States. This set of provisions were really driven by America's pharmaceutical companies. The other very odious provision is what is called the investment agreement, which sounds like it's protecting property rights, but really is giving more property rights to American firms, say, investing abroad or Australian firms investing abroad than they get at home. A dramatic example of this is if a country changes a regulation, it can be sued. The consequence for workers of this is very serious because what it means is it's another way that the bargaining power of workers is eroded. Uh, The company can come to the workers and say, unless you take a wage cut, we are going to move abroad and we can get better property protections. We can get protection against changes in regulation in Vietnam or Malaysia that we can't get in the United States and Australia. So that's an example of a provision which, you know, should not be in a trade agreement. It's really about investment and there should be a public debate about these provisions. As you know, GetUp's just published an economic vision called Future to Fight For, which looks at what happens when you put people at the center of economic thinking. We're proposing guaranteed jobs, uh, minimum income guarantee, lifelong access to free education and training, and massive investment in public housing, amongst other things. There are some people who will undoubtedly say that this is an unaffordable and radical agenda. If this is the kind of thing that passes as radical, can we all afford to be a bit more radical? (laughs) I agree with you very much. This is not radical. This is just common sense and it's basic decency. In the United States, our minimum wage is $7.25. So somebody can work full time and get $15,000. In New York, you can't even pay your rent for that amount of money. It is not a livable wage. 
And so what you do is you force people to take two jobs or you put enormous stresses on families. You basically force them to be homeless. It is really indecent for a rich country as rich as uh, the United States or as rich as Australia that people would be working under this kind of pay and seems to me uh, indecent. I feel like if you lived in Australia, you'd make a very good Get Up member, Professor Stiglitz. (laughs) The final question that I've got for you is that obviously there's a lot to be concerned about when you look at the world at the moment. Inequality continues to worsen and perhaps related to that, there's been a rise in fairly reactionary politics in, in many countries. I think a lot of people who see themselves as progressive feel a bit worried about the direction that things are headed and a bit concerned about whether or not there are things that they can do. So I'm interested, as a final note, when you look at the world, what gives you hope? I think what gives me hope is that uh, two things. One, the level of engagement of our young people. You know, they came out in support in the United States uh, of Bernie Sanders. To them, this discussion of radical, they don't find anything radical about government making sure that everybody has access to uh, college education in one way or another. Uh, That's not radical. That's common sense. And then secondly, all over the country uh, in the United States and, and all over the world, there is broader civic engagement, uh, and it's happening at all different kinds of levels. Cities like Seattle doubled the minimum wage, $15 an hour, and, and they said, you know, it's a decent thing to do, and people in Seattle were saying, you know, it really helped our economy, it didn't hurt it. We had the uh, march of a million women the day after Trump's inauguration. So this seems to be a, a moment of an awakening. I hope it's maintained and I hope it, it it bears political fruit, but it certainly gives me hope that we are at a cusp of a major change. Professor Stiglitz, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. And that's it for this week. You can get this podcast right to your phone through the podcast app or listen to them as we add them to the website each week. And do please get in touch and let us know what you think. GetUp's mission has always been to amplify the voices of everyday people in our democracy. So we want to hear what you've got to say. Thanks for joining us, and until next time.